Today's scripture reading is going to come from Psalm chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. We could go ahead and have those on the screen. Thank you. Beginning in verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Go to the next slide. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Oops. Sorry, guys. I can control it from up here. (laughs) Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is God's word. You can have a seat. So welcome to Mac Avenue Community Church. My name is Jonathan Demers. I'm one of the elders here at Mac. Uh, It is a privilege and honor to be here this morning. Usually it is Pastor Eric or Pastor Leon who is leading our time. But as has been mentioned, Eric is on vacation, enjoying some time with his family. Um, And Pastor Leon is getting some time to enjoy uh, time with his dad, which Mr. Stevenson, I just want to say from the front, how much of an honor it is to have Leon as one of our pastors here. Um, I think if, yep, definitely should clap. I think uh, if you had spiritual infrared glasses and you could see fingerprints in this room, you would see Leon's fingerprints all over all of our lives. Uh, he's just had such an impact. So grateful for you, brother. Um, so uh, if you need a copy of your Bible, we're going to have the verses on the screen, but there is one in front of you in the pews. And if you have a question during the sermon, it is entirely welcome for you to raise your hand, interrupt me, and ask that question. Uh, If it's more personal to you, you're welcome to talk to me afterwards. I'm going to be up here to answer questions, to pray for you, to maybe clarify something that was confusing afterwards. But if it's something that has to do with the sermon as a whole, please feel free to raise your hand and ask. Um, And with that, let's pray and we can begin this study. Father, it is so good to be here this morning. It is good to be in your presence, to be drawn into the throne room by the worship team. And just to pause from our busy schedules, our summer plans, our school studying, and to thank you for your word. Lord, the psalm is so clear. We are called to delight in your word, to meditate on it. And I pray that we would grasp that this morning. I pray that you would teach us what it looks like to be the blessed man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, Lord. But we are the kind of people who delight in you and in your law. And so, Lord, I ask for me, may may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight as well. May you speak through me, may you set aside my own distractions, my own issues, And may I just be a vessel that is able to clearly communicate the word. Amen. So, uh, some of you may recognize this individual. His name is Tim Keller. He is a pastor and reverend in New York City. And he planted a church there back in the uh, late 90s. And the church itself is not that large. There's about 1,000 people at the main location. But over the last 20 years, Redeemer has built the legacy of church planting around the country as well as around the world. Uh, and Keller himself is a very well-known speaker. He's also a prolific writer. 
And when I was a college student, he had a tremendous impact on me through his writings and through his teachings. And even in the sermon today, you'll hear me reference him a few times because I'll be borrowing illustrations or examples that he's used uh, when talking about Psalms. Um, And I'm going to take us back actually to 2011 when I was a senior in college at Cedarville and I had the opportunity, well, Robin's like, whoa, that was a long time ago. (laughs) Um, I I got the opportunity to attend a conference in Chicago hosted by the Gospel Coalition and it was called Christ in the City. And actually, I believe Leon and Eric and some of the uh, MAC leadership at the time were there unbeknownst to me because I didn't even know what MAC was at the time. Um, but one of the reasons I wanted to go was because I wanted to hear from Pastor Keller. Um, one of the things that he has a reputation for is really preaching on um, a Christian's role in the city. And uh, as someone who was going to be teaching in Detroit that upcoming fall, I really wanted to, to hear from him. And at the end of the conference, after all the sessions were done, I saw him walking in the hallway. Uh, and you have to picture this with me. He's walking, and there's a gentleman to his left and a gentleman to his right, and, and both of them are, are gesturing, and, and they're thinking, and they're, they look like they're wrestling through this, this deep issue. But I'm an ambitious 22-year-old college senior who's going to go into Teach for America, so of course, I'm going to step out into the middle of the hallway and interrupt them and introduce myself, uh, which is what I did, and I'm somewhat embarrassed to say that. <laughs> Um, and as I approach, I extend my hand to uh, Tim Keller, and I said, hi, my, you know, my name is Jonathan Demers, and I uh, proceeded to introduce myself. I explained that I was going to graduate from Cedarville, that I was going to be going to his home city of New York to train to become a teacher, uh, and then in the fall, I would be uh, teaching in Detroit uh, social studies in the public high schools. And I you know, went through and explained, and, and he, he listened to me, and, and he asked questions, and uh, At Cedarville, at our chapels, we had a lot of famous speakers come in. We had different writers and professors and seminary people because we had chapel every day at Cedarville. Um, And I think over the course of those four years, I learned the ability to pick up the difference between when somebody is looking through you uh, and when someone's looking at you. When uh, somebody is hearing the words that you're saying and someone's actually listening to you. And I can say with a fair amount of confidence that In that interaction, Tim Keller was listening to me. He wasn't just hearing the words I said. He wasn't looking through me, trying to get to his next agenda item. He was really present with me, despite the fact that I interrupted his conversation, despite the fact that he would probably never see me again. Um, And that, that really impacted me, and it confirmed for me in that quick moment the character that I saw in his writings and his his teaching. Um, Well, as many of you may also know, he recently resigned from his position. Uh, as senior pastor of Redeemer. And uh, he did so not as a surprise. It was part of a 10-year plan for him to step back and allow other people to take a position of leadership in Redeemer and, and not to depend solely on him. Um, and there were a lot of tributes that came out in February and March of this year talking about the impact that Tim Keller has had uh, on the Christian legacy and the Christian movement in the, in the Western world and particularly in America there was one tribute in particular that stood out to me. It was written by a pastor at Redeemer who will be stepping in to fill the gap that's going to be left behind by Keller. And I want to show you an excerpt that's here on the screen. This is, again, from Scott Sauls. He's going to be one of the pastors taking Keller's place. And he says, As Tim's influence grew over the years, so did his dependence on the hidden ordinary graces of daily scripture reading and prayer. He maintains at age 66 a youthful posture of learning that has him reading about 150 books per year, 
And his longtime habit is to pray through the Psalms every month and read the entire Bible every year. So setting aside the fact that this man reads a book every two or three days, which is pretty remarkable, I would, I would venture to say most of us haven't read 150 books, period. And that includes Dr. Seuss. Um, I was really impacted by the fact that Keller not only reads the Bible through a year, which is somewhat common, but he prays through the Psalms. He doesn't just read them. Um, and it's something that I've tried to pick up since I, I read this tribute. I've started myself trying to pray through the Psalms. Um, and I was, I was impacted by a sermon that Keller did on the Psalms while I've been going through this process of praying, I've been trying to study as well. And Keller talks about Psalm 1, and he talks about it as the gatekeeper to the Psalter, the book of Psalms. But not just the gatekeeper to the book of Psalms, he describes it as the gatekeeper to the entire Bible. Because there are some fundamental truths in this Psalm that we're about to study that are at the very core, they're at the very heart of what it means to follow God. And so I really want to underscore that, not just because that's what Keller said, but it obviously has had an impact on his life. The fact that he stopped and talked to me, a kid who interrupted him in a conference when he had plenty of other things to do, shows that he's not just someone who thinks about the word. It's really impacted his life. And as I've been going through Psalms, I've seen how it has softened my heart and built more empathy in my life. And I obviously was able to see that in his life towards me. So I want to use that as an opportunity to really underscore how important it is we get Psalm 1 um, as we move forward. And so we're going to look at this psalm in three different parts, just like it's organized. Uh, The first part's going to be describing who the blessed man is. Part two is going to focus on the fruitful tree. And then part three is going to focus on the two paths. And really, this is how the sermon or the psalm itself is organized. The first two verses really focus on teaching. The next two verses then focus more on illustrating the teaching. And then the last two verses are more of a forewarning in terms of how you respond to the teaching of the first two verses. So with that, let's jump into the first part. And we're going to break that first part down into three subparts. First, we've got to define what blessed means. Then we're going to look at what the blessed man does and does not do. And we're starting with that definition because it's the very first word of the very first verse of the very first psalm. And it's also the word that we could quickly glance over if we're not careful. I think it's fair to say that most of us have a working definition of what we think blessed means or blessing means. When I think of that, I think of one of my grandmothers who will say that she's praying a a special blessing for me. Um, Or maybe the person who's extra spiritual and closes their signature line with blessings, comma, Jonathan Demers. Um, And and we kind of have this like colloquial sense of what the word means, like we do with a lot of words that are in the Bible. But one important Bible study tip to keep in mind is that we can't import our understanding in this culture, in this context, into words that were written thousands of years ago. And it would be a danger to do that here because if we don't understand what blessed means, we don't understand who the blessed man is, and we don't understand the teaching of this psalm. So looking at the Hebrew itself that's being used here, um, the the key word is isher. That's what's being interpreted here. That's the Hebrew word that's translated as blessed. It means to be happy, satisfied, content. It's not so much a jovial kind of silly happiness. It's more of this like very deep contentedness. And it's like that because it comes from the Hebrew word uh, isher, I'm sorry, ashar, which means to make straight 
or to advance or to correct. It comes from this idea that, of a joy that comes from doing things the proper way, the right way. That we actually find a lot of true joy, genuine joy, not from circumstances, which we'll speak to in a minute, but from doing things the way God created them to be done. And I think that's really important that we understand that because that's how it's used in Scripture. Both in the Psalms, which I I tried to survey on the left where that Hebrew word is used, and then also in the New Testament, as an example, where the Hebrew word is translated in Greek and used in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus talks about blessed are those who are mournful, blessed are those who are meek, blessed are the peacemakers, the beatitudes. The same word is used there. And again, it's not blessings like my grandmother would talk about it. It's this deeply rooted contentedness. And I tried to come up with a working definition on the screen of what that means. So I defined to be blessed as to have a genuine joy, independent of circumstances, and produced by confidence and faith in God. Now, if that's a little too wordy for you, another way to think about it is like this. To be blessed is to have a fundamental happiness, not a circumstantial happiness. And and let me see if I can explain what that means. A lot of times when we talk about happiness, we think about it in terms of our circumstances. So if we're sad, we look to our circumstances and say, what in my circumstances have caused me to be sad? My job is really hard. Um, I don't have enough food in the house. My family relationships aren't great. We look to external circumstances. And then we try to change those circumstances to create happiness. That is not the kind of happiness that's being described in the Bible here. What's being described is a fundamental happiness. A happiness that is internal to you, that's drawn from something deeper and something insulated from those circumstances. And here, that's faith and trust in God that allows you to experience a certain amount of contentedness, a blessedness that is regardless of the circumstances that you face. To pull from the analogy that we're going to see later in this psalm, happiness is not something that rains down on you. It's something that you draw up from beneath you, from within you, from the Holy Spirit, independent of the circumstances. Another way to think about it is that happiness is something that never consists in what happens to you, but actually what you draw from within you. And not this sort of mystical idea of what's in yourself, but the Holy Spirit specifically, God himself. If you have God, you can have that blessedness that's being talked about here, regardless of circumstance. Keller talks about this in one of his sermons, and he uses an old poem, kind of a riddle to help uh, drive the point home. And the poem goes like this. Two men looked out through prison bars. One saw mud, the other stars. Two men looked out through prison bars. One saw mud, the other stars. What's the difference, right? They're both in the same cell. They're both looking out the same window, looking out into the same world, but they see two different things. The circumstances are identical. It's not the circumstances that are leading them to see something different. What's leading them to see something different is what's going on internally, right? The latter guy is like Paul and Silas in the jail cell, who in the midst of that terrible situation, in the midst of circumstances that should have led them to despair, they're able to sing praise songs to God in that jail cell. It's the kind of attitude that Paul has in Philippians 2, where he talks about being content with much or with little, that he can do all things through Christ who strengthens him. That's what this psalm is talking about, That is what it means to be blessed here. 
So if that's what it means to be blessed, then now we need to look at what the blessed man does not do as well as what he does. And verse one is very clear. The blessed man does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Now that progression is very deliberate. You go from walking to standing to sitting. And that's intentional. It's very, very important that we see that. And I'm I'm throwing images on the screen because I want us to get this idea of, of moving from one place to another over time. That progression is designed to show what happens when you begin by dabbling in something and ultimately end up identifying in it. And that's because in the Hebrew language, in that particular culture and in that context, who you sit with is who your community is. It's who you belong to. It's who you identify with. And in this psalm, the wicked, or the not the blessed man, but the wicked man, in this case, he actually um, goes from simply walking to um, actually, might be a little cold. <laughs> um, he goes from walking to sitting. And that is his means of identifying with this community. One commentary put it like this. It says that the walk-stand-sit sequence envisions a progression from relatively casual association with the wicked to complete identification with them. That's the key here. And it's in many ways parallel to what we see in the book of James, another famous passage in the New Testament. Note, uh, beginning in verse 12 of chapter 1 from James. James says, Blessed is the man, now we know what that word means, who remains steadfast under trial. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And this is an important concept to understand. The blessed man is wary. He is concerned about the effect that he will have if he just puts his toe into the waters of sin. And he dabbles in it. Because he knows that that can lead over time to acclimating to that water, right? To getting his feet a little bit further in. And and before he knows it, he's swimming in it. That is the picture that Psalms is trying to show here. The blessed man understands that if he dabbles in sin, he can quickly identify with it. And I think many of us know either from our own lives, or from our own situations, our families, our friends, people who have suffered this experience. They started just by dabbling in sin. They put their toe in the water, and over time, they became acclimated to it. They became desensitized to it. And the next thing you know, they were swimming in those waters. The blessed man is wary of that effect, and he ensures that he does not even walk in the way. So that's what the blessed man does not do. Um, I want to be clear, though, and I think this is a wrong reading of the passage. This passage does not mean that we do not associate with people who sin. If that were the case, all of us would just need to leave right now because we're in a room full of people who sin, including this one right here. So that is not what the passage is teaching here. What it is teaching is that we cannot assimilate into the culture and the ideas and the values that the sin itself promotes. That's the difference here, the difference between association and identification or assimilation. And if you don't believe me, look at Jesus himself. Look at the company that he keeps all throughout the New Testament. He's not often surrounded by the religious elite and the people who are looked into society as the ones who are most righteous or most upstanding. He is constantly surrounded 
by the people who are seen as outcasts in the Hebrew society. The people who are viewed in many ways as the sinners at the gate. And yet that's who Jesus is always around. He is the perfect balance of grace and truth, never compromising on the truth, and yet so attractive to people who have otherwise been repelled by religion. They're the ones choosing to associate with him, even though he doesn't capitulate to a lot of the sinful ideas that they have uh, uh, basically accepted and lived their lives by. That's our example here. Jesus is the blessed man in that situation. And so I'm not here to teach that we shouldn't associate with people who sin, because obviously that's not the teaching of the Bible or the example of Jesus. What we must be careful, though, is dabbling in sin and justifying it and allowing ourselves to become desensitized to sin. So that's what it means for the blessed man to not do these things. That's what Psalm 1-1 says. But also in verse 2, it says what he does in a positive sense. And it says that his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And here we need to break down a few words as well. We need to make sure we understand what the psalmist is saying. When he says delights, the psalmist is using a kind of reference to the thing that we all love to do and nobody has to ask us to do it. Right? It's the thing that you long to do when you're tired, you've been pouring yourself out in other ways, and you just enjoy it. That's the kind of delight that's being used here. And I was convicted because when I went through this passage, when I thought of the things that I delight in, the first thing was not God's word and his law. The thing that came to mind for me was after a long week or after a lot of time spent with people, I just want to sit on the couch, open my laptop, and like read sports. Like That's all I want to do. I just want to look at box scores. I want to like read long-form sports articles, maybe have a snack. Like nobody, nobody would like force me to read stats about the Red Sox. I enjoy that. I long to do that when I have nothing else to do. And there are times actually where it's just Laura and I home and Laura has to kind of tap me on the shoulder because I'm spending time doing that when I should be spending time with her. Um, that is the idea that's being communicated here. But this man does not delight in Boston Red Sox stats. He delights in the law of the Lord. And he also meditates on it. Now, meditates is a word that gets thrown around a lot in church. And I think often it gets equated with reading, right? So I spend time in my quiet time or reading the Bible. That's not the same thing as meditating on the word. Reading, meditating, two different things. Reading is just looking at the page and interpreting it. Meditating is then taking the next step and saying, man, what is that passage really trying to teach me? And how does that connect to what I read in James yesterday? And, and how does that make me think about what happened with my coworker yesterday? And wow, that really convicts me and how I treated my wife the day before. And oh man, that really connects to that song I was listening to. I probably shouldn't be listening to that song right now. And, and really just chewing and wrestling and thinking about the truth of that passage. If you're finding that your quiet times are not very fruitful and enjoyable, I wonder how much you're meditating as opposed to reading. Take the time, not just to rush through your quiet time, but just to pause and allow the train of thought that inevitably comes up in your readings to carry you through and to remind yourself of God's truth in your life. Um, I'm reminded of an example of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a famous pastor from Germany during uh, the Nazi era, and he led an underground seminary during that time. And uh, while he led that seminary, many of his students would come up to him and say, 
You know, you're asking us to study three verses for three hours. I haven't seen my family in weeks. The Nazis are about to take over the world. And you want me to sit in a room and study three verses for three hours. That's just not possible. And they were concerned that because they're getting distracted by all those other things that they weren't studying well. And Bonhoeffer wisely challenged them and said, no, no, no. Those distractions can be godly. Don't feel like you have to put those outside. They're a part of your life. They're a part of your experience. Take them to the Lord in your study. Use the passages and apply them to the fears and the struggles that you're experiencing. And that's had an impact on the way I do my quiet time. I will oftentimes... Uh, When I am reminded of something that I'm worried about at work, I will pause and I will pray and ask the Lord for peace over that anxiety. And I encourage you guys to do the same thing. That's that's what the psalmist is getting at here when he says to meditate, not just to read through, but to, to really immerse yourself in thinking about the passage. And then finally, he talks about the law. And this is not a reference to the ritualistic code that we've been talking about in Exodus alone. It's part of that, yes, but really the law of the Lord as referenced here is the story of the Bible. It's the gospel narrative. What he delights in is not just the different pieces of how the temple's built and when things are sacrificed. The blessed man delights, he's mesmerized, he is taken in by the story of the gospel. That he, a sinner, would be saved by a good God. That is what he's delighting in, not just those codes. So I think it's interesting to note, and I'll I'll go back really quick. If you look at those two verbs, they have kind of a a connotation to the two of them. One being a little bit more on the emotional side of things, delighting. The other being more on the intellectual side of things, meditating. And I think here at Mac and, and elsewhere in the church, we tend to hold our emotion and our intellect in conflict. We tend to look, if we're more intellectual, Uh, at our emotions as a distraction. And if we're more on the emotional side, we tend to look at our intellect as cold and and disarming. And I don't think that's the posture of the Bible, and I don't think that's the posture of this passage. What the psalmist is showing here is that God is desiring that we use both our emotions and our intellect to bring honor and attention to God. And I think John Piper said this better than I ever could in his own sermon on Psalm 1. He says, for many people, thinking and feeling are like oil and water. They repulse each other. Yet God has given us minds and demanded we use them in understanding and applying his word. And God has given us emotions, which are equally essential, and which he commands we vigorously engage in his service. If we neglect the mind, we will drift into all sorts of doctrinal error. If we neglect the heart, we will be dead while we yet live, no matter how right our creed may be. Let us be clear in our heads and warm in our hearts. Let us feel with all our might and let us think with all our might. That's the posture of the psalm here, family. And as somebody who tends to trend more to the intellectual side of things and can be a little bit more critical of people on more of the emotional side of things, I think this is a helpful truth for me to hear and, and for us too. God gave us our heart and our mind and he desires us to use them both for his glory. Let us not hold them in conflict. So that's who the blessed man is, what he does and what he does not do. Now we need to look at how the psalmist illustrates both the blessed man and the wicked uh, through a couple of illustrations in verses 3 and 4. We see the psalmist refer to the blessed man like a tree planted by streams of water, yielding fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. Whereas the wicked are described as chaff, which the wind drives away. 
I think it's good to even visualize what this looks like, right? You have a tree. It's planted by water. When it's in season, it's bearing fruit. It's pulling from that stream. It's strong. It's rooted. Um, and it, is, it, is, it stands out in many ways in its setting. Compared to chaff, which I would venture to say most of us have probably not had much interaction with unless you have more of an agricultural background, it is the closest thing to totally useless material that we have on this planet. Um, I was trying to even look into it myself because I was having a hard time figuring out how to describe chaff. But it's indigestible. It's dry. It's basically just the casings of grain that's harvested that have no other use. And so in some settings, you will use processes like these to just toss your weed up and chaff will float off and, and float away. Literally, the only use that I saw, or one of the uses I saw, was that it will be put into livestock feed to force your animals to stop eating food so fast because it's so gross and so bad to eat. Which means, as uh, Laura pointed out yesterday, it's actually worse than brand cereal. That tells you how bad it is. (laughs) Hopefully there's no brand cereal big fans here. Um, I think it's important to, to actually see that though, right? And to see how that compares to the tree. And there are some obvious contrasts. I don't think this is intended to be a really difficult comparison that we have to think about for a long time, although we can. It's supposed to be simple and straightforward in its contrast. Having said that, though, there are three characteristics that I really want to focus on in this illustration before moving on to the end of the psalm. So the blessed man here, as the tree, he abides in God. And I'm specifically using that that word because it comes from John 15, And John 15 is another situation where Jesus uses a plant analogy to describe what it looks like to be a Christian. In John 15, Jesus talks about himself as the vine and we as Christians, the branches. It's the same thing there. If the plant is to be healthy, it must abide in the core in that case. Um, And in both of these analogies, the tree is healthy because it abides, because it draws its strength and its health from a greater, deeper source. And I think sometimes when we think about fruit, for example, we get discouraged in our life because we don't see fruit. And fruit is a sign of health, there's no question about it. But the solution is not to try and force fruit in your life. That would be like taping fruit onto a tree that's not healthy. It doesn't make the tree healthy. It might look that way, but the tree is still not healthy. What this teaching means, both in the Psalm and in John 15, is that if you want to be healthy... The tree itself has to pull from the source. It can't try to look healthy. That might deceive people. But true health is shown when you are dependent on the source of your health, which in this psalm and in John 15 is God himself. That is the teaching here. If you want to be fruitful and if you're not seeing fruit in your life, don't try to change your circumstances. Look to the Lord himself. Draw deeply on him. Delight in his word. I think another characteristic that's obvious from this contrast between the chaff and the tree is that the blessed man is discerning. And that's seen in how the tree is rooted and grounded, but the chaff just floats away and is tossed to and fro by winds. And I think we see now in society and politics and issues that it is very easy to be tossed from one side to the other, to be confused, to be uh, flip-floppy in a lot of ways. And what the blessed man is, is grounded. He understands God. He understands the wisdom of scripture. And he is not distracted and tossed to and fro by different issues. No, he is 
deeply rooted and he is able to discern and not be caught up like the wicked who are often cast about from one issue to another. The characteristic I really want to focus on is this third one. It's this idea that the blessed man perseveres. And it comes from a couple of traits in the passage that I think we often overlook. And I want to see if you guys caught him. Um, The first being in verse 3. There it says that he is like a tree that yields its fruit in its season. So by implication then, that means that the tree is not always bearing fruit. That it is not fruitful all year round. It deals with drought. It deals with a beating sun. It deals with winters. And in those seasons, it is not bearing fruit. It is, in a way, experiencing a form of suffering. And yet, and because of that, it is not bearing fruit. However, that does not mean that it is not healthy. Because we see in the very next line that its leaf does not wither. And so yet, what we have in this passage is a tree that is healthy yet not bearing fruit. A tree that is experiencing suffering yet somehow still experiencing joy of being blessed at the same time. We see this in 1 Peter 1, where Peter describes the church there as rejoicing and grieving at the same time. Now this is really important and I want to make sure that this is clear. A lot of times in Christian circles, we have this belief that when we experience grief, We need to just cast it aside, pretend it never happened, move on, maybe put a couple pieces of tape on our face to force a smile, and just move on like nothing happened. I would go so far to say as that is wholly unbiblical. That is counter to the teaching of the Psalms and of the Bible as a whole. I use this phrase a lot because I can't stand it. And so I want to be clear, if you you lost track for a second and you looked up at this slide, I'm not endorsing what is said on here. In fact, I'm just going to put strike through lines on there because I don't want you to think that that is true. That is unbiblical. This is a silly catchphrase that gets thrown around in Christian circles that teaches us to think that it, when we experience grief, when, when Hazel's not gaining weight or when the coffees have things stolen from them, that they just need to paint a smile on their face and say, okay, well, God's in control. I'm just going to move on. That's, that's not what the Bible has for us here. The Bible says that we can experience grief and acknowledge it, as it said in 1 Peter 1, and still rejoice. It's not that one needs to be cast aside for the other. In fact, I would go so far as to say that true joy comes in moments of grief because grief pushes us deeper and deeper into God. Um, If you look at a root system for a tree, when it's thirsty, its roots go deeper and deeper. In some cases, root systems of a tree can be so wide and so deep that they are larger than the tree itself. That's what the blessed man is. The blessed man has deep roots because in his seasons of not being fruitful, in his seasons of experiencing grief, he does not try to tape on fruit. He dives more deeply into God and into who he is. And I think anybody who's here who's experienced a tragedy and has seen God step up and support them and care for them would tell you that that's the truth. That joy and grief can be experienced at the same time. Um, They're not enemies. And that, in fact, joy from God can be produced in an even deeper way when we experience that grief. I was trying to uh, think of a a story that illustrated this. And uh, I thought of a a part in the movie and books from The Lord of the Rings. 
Uh, it was written by J.R.R. Tolkien and then turned into film by Peter Jackson recently. And in the third book of the series, everything's kind of coming to a climactic finish. And there's this literally battle to end all battles where one of the greatest evils that's been ever seen in this magical world is about to overrun the last vestiges of good in the world. And two of the main characters are kind of sitting at the castle before it's about to be attacked in the calm before the storm. One is a wizard. His name is Gandalf. He is a, uh, a Christ figure in a lot of ways in the story. Um, he's very respected. He's wise. Um, and then there's another character, the one to the left, uh, Pippin. He's a hobbit, so he's a smaller guy. He's actually very clumsy. He's very foolish. In many cases, he makes things worse than better. Um, and in this story, he's been attached to Gandalf through another one of his mistakes. And he's about to experience this battle to end all battles. And as he and Gandalf are talking about it, as they're looking over where thousands and thousands of soldiers are about to fight and, and kill one another, uh, Gandalf actually laughs about the situation. And Pippin is, is sort of astonished that Gandalf could even find it within himself to laugh in such a difficult situation. Um, and the book describes a scene like this. It says, Pippin glanced in some wonder at the face now close beside his own. For the sound of that laugh had been gay and merry. Yet the wizard's face, he saw at first only lines of care and sorrow. Though as he looked on more intently, he perceived that under all of that was a great joy, a fountain of mirth enough to set a kingdom laughing were it to gush forth. That idea, what Gandalf is representing there, is what that tree persevering looks like in Psalm 1. This acceptance of the fact that what we see in the world grieves us and causes us sorrow. But at the same time, we can have peace and joy and hope because of who we know in God. We don't have to abandon the grief that we experience. In fact, we can embrace it because that will drive us further into God and into who he is. So that's the first two parts of the sermon. That's what it means to be the blessed man and also to really understand the illustration that's being used. That leaves us with the last two verses, the two paths that are described here. And in verse 5, we see that the wicked will not stand in judgment, but the Lord knows the way of the righteous, while the way of the wicked will perish. And this is kind of a forewarning based on how we respond to the first four verses of this psalm. And as I was thinking about this, I thought about Satan and his tactics and a lot of the spiritual warfare that many in this room have experienced. And I think it's fair to say that you can boil most spiritual warfare and most attacks from the enemy into two basic strategies. Most of the time, Satan is trying to convince saved people that they are lost. And he's trying to convince lost people that they are safe. That is the basic nuts and bolts of what the enemy tries to do. He tries to convince saved people, Christians, that they're lost. He tries to convince lost people that they're safe. And I think if we don't understand the way of the wicked and the way of the righteous, then we're not going to be able to discern when we're being deceived by the enemy. So I want to use this as an opportunity to kind of prepare us for the next wave of spiritual warfare that we will inevitably see. So as we go through this section, we're going to look specifically at um, the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. And so first, let's look at the path of the wicked. And as we do, I want you to keep in mind this idea of allegiance, because it is at the core of both paths. When I think of allegiance, I think of things that we say we have an allegiance to. 
maybe we would say we have an allegiance to principles of living. Like, I really want to be, live my life by being honest. I want to live my life uh, by being just or compassionate or patient. And we would say that these are the things that guide the way we live and spend our money and, and work our jobs. However, I think if we were honest, especially before we became Christians, for many of us, we didn't really live with any kind of allegiance to these principles. Really, our one guiding principle was our happiness. Any time that one of those principles up there got in the way, we would discard it if it interfered with our happiness. So I, you know, let's say that I um, didn't do a chore that Laura asked me to do. I have a choice. Am I living by the principle of honesty and I'm going to tell her that I didn't do it? Or am I going to lie because I think that that's going to produce happiness, right? If I'm at work, am I going to make a choice that pursues and furthers justice in society? Or am I going to choose the decision that's going to lead to my promotion at work, right? We easily discard these principles because we really don't have any allegiance to them. We have an allegiance to ourselves, And the way of the wicked ultimately is a way of lacking allegiance. If you go back to the verse in verse 5, the wicked will not stand in judgment. And that is because God is looking in this moment of judgment where our allegiances are. And oftentimes we want mostly, more than anything, just allegiance to our happiness. But the Bible is really clear. If we want to see true blessedness and true happiness, we need to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6. That's what comes first. It's not the other way around. We don't try and figure out our happiness and then sort of pursue God. And I think it's fair to say that a lot of us have either been there or we're there right now. We come to God and we come to God with conditions. We say, God, I want to follow you, I want to worship you, I want to love you, but I really don't want to give up this part of my life. I really don't want to have to go there. I really don't want to have to work this job. I really don't want to have to go without a spouse or girlfriend for this period of time. We come to God with these conditions, and those conditions reveal that our allegiance is not to God. God is not a genie in a lamp. God is not our butler. God created us. He made the world. He made you. And you owe him your full allegiance regardless of what he asks you to do and where he wants you to go. And when you create those conditions, you are showing, you are revealing that you are on the path of the wicked. And in the moment of judgment, you will not stand. That's what it means ultimately to be the path of the wicked. But you don't have to stay there. We know that. We know that from scripture. We see it in Luke 15 where Jesus is teaching the parable of the prodigal son. There you have a son who has abandoned his father. He's shown no allegiance to his father. He's taken his inheritance, his money, his stuff, and he's left and he's spent it on other things and he's completely dishonored his father. And yet despite dishonoring his father, in the midst of all that, he he reconciles with him because he's able to say to his father, I've sinned against you. I just want to come back, not so I can be your son and be really happy. I just want to come back to serve you. And notice how the father responds to the prodigal son. He doesn't accept him as a servant. He accepts him as his son. He says that my son was dead, but now he's alive again. He was lost, and now he's found. If you're listening and you're thinking, man, I'm not sure my allegiance is to God. That doesn't have to be the final answer. You can decide even this morning that you have the opportunity to switch your allegiance to God, not coming to him with conditions, but coming to him to serve And you'll find not a taskmaster, but a father, a father who wants to take you in and to adopt you into 
his family. That's the way of the wicked, and that's how you can get off of it. Um, The Lord is really clear. Salvation comes to those who pursue God in that way. I think it's also important to understand the way of the righteous and really key in on the word in verse 6, that the Lord knows the way of the righteous. This reminded me of Matthew 7, also in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus has gone through his sermon and he talks about these individuals who approach him. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I, this is Jesus, declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So when the Psalm says that the Lord knows the way of the righteous, it's the same idea that's here. It's not that your spiritual resume allows you to be known by God. Spiritual resumes don't save. These guys did greater things than many of us, if not all of us in this room. I've never prophesied. I've never cast out any demons. My resume doesn't match up. But it's not about spiritual resume. It's about knowing God and knowing the gospel and knowing him. And that comes through delighting in the law and meditating on it. Keller talks about this idea of knowing the law as like a flute. So imagine that you're walking through the woods and you discover this flute, and you see it, and you pick it up. If you don't know how to play it, it might as well be a bear trap. It's basically useless to you. And the question we have to ask ourselves as Christians, using this analogy, is if the gospel is like that flute, do we know how to use it? Do we know how to play it? Do we know how to sing its tunes? Do we know how to try different things? Do we know how to pull it out of our bag when the uh, opportunity is appropriate to be able to play the beautiful music of the gospel in the presence of other people? Do we know how to to, to mix it up and, and play with others? Do we really know how to use that instrument or do we sort of keep it on the shelf? Do we pull it off on Sundays? Do we practice maybe once every now and then? Or do we really know the gospel? That's getting again after this idea of your emotion and your intellect coming together and enjoying and delighting and studying the gospel. If you're doing that, family, then the Lord knows you. He knows you and you will stand in the day of judgment. I think the parable that hits this point home that that drives the idea of someone home better than any is this parable found in Matthew 13. It's probably my favorite one, if not simply for the fact that it's two sentences long. Um, And Jesus wraps up all of this teaching about the kingdom of God by saying this. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and he buys that field. That man is the blessed man from Psalm 1. That is the man who understands that his source and joy and strength and stability like the tree in verse 3 does not come from his circumstances, but it comes from his relationship to God. And ultimately, he is willing to give up all of his circumstances, everything he has, his possessions, in order to be connected to God. That's what it means to walk on the path of the righteous. That's what it means to be the blessed man. That's why we're in this sermon series right now. We're in this series because we are asking you, as leadership at this church, to really wrestle with some of the tough teachings of the Bible. 
And my challenge to you is to, to go back and to consider someone and to examine yourself and to look for opportunities to be the blessed man by delighting in the law of the Lord and meditating on it day and night, especially if you're dealing with affliction, especially if you're dealing with grief. You will not find happiness in your circumstances. You will find it by drawing deeply with your roots from God and from who he is. So let's pray. Father, we desperately, desperately want happiness. We are willing to spend money on it. We're willing to spend our time on it, leave jobs for it, have families, buy homes. We're willing to do so many things. But so often, God, those are just circumstantial forms of happiness. They're not a true sense of joy. They're not the the blessedness that's talked about in Psalm 1. And Lord, often that is because we are unwilling to swear our full allegiance to you. We're unwilling to come to you without condition, without reservation. We think we know what's best for our happiness. Lord, I pray that the teaching of this psalm would get after our hearts. It would get after our very core, that we wouldn't be distracted by all these other things and all these other cares in life, but that we would seek first the kingdom of God and your righteousness, that we would be anxious about nothing, that instead the peace that surpasses all understanding would guide our hearts and minds because we are delighting and meditating on the law of the Lord. There is no substitute for that. And we ask, Lord, that you would give us the grace and the courage to be a people who delight in the law of the Lord. And from that, everything else springs out, our impact in the community, our witness in the community, our, our, our work, our neighboring, Lord. May all those things flow out of a genuine delight and meditating on the law of the Lord. We love you, God. We're grateful for you, grateful for this church and the opportunity to be in your throne room this morning, even as we get ready to head into another busy week. Amen.